In the words of Apollo 13 astronaut Jack Swigert, Houston, we have a problem. Friends, you, me, all of humanity, these beautiful children up in front of us today, we all have a problem. The prophet Jeremiah wrote two verses, Jeremiah 17, verse 8, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, and the problem is, is described so accurately in those two verses. 17, verse 8 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. My heart is disgusting. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's verse 8. Verse 9, the Lord searches the heart. The Lord searches our heart and examines our mind. To reframe that in the language of the children's sermon, the inside of the cup is filthy, and God knows all about it. Our hearts and our minds convict us before our righteous God. Now, one of the ways throughout history that people have dealt with that dilemma is to work really hard on cleaning the outside of the cup. Like cleaning the inside of the cup, that's, that's really difficult to do. So we just double down on our efforts to make the outside of the cup extra spiffy, make it sparkle, make it shine. But no matter how impressive we can make the outside of the cup look, our problem remains because God looks inside the cup. He looks at our hearts. He doesn't judge by the appearance of things. He judges by the reality of things. This morning, we're returning to our series through the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to Mark chapter 7, and it's a difficult passage today. We come to a passage where Jesus has another confrontation with some Pharisees and some, some religious leaders, some teachers of the law. And, and in this confrontation, the religious leaders are hyper-focused on the outside of the cup, hyper-focused on the appearance of things, and Jesus wants to shift the conversation and speak about the inside of the cup, speak about the, the heart of the matter. So join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, we thank you that there really is nothing new under the sun. And the, the human dilemma hasn't changed. You're the Lord who searches hearts and our hearts condemn us. Lord, we are a people who need a savior and so we pray that you would aid us this morning in the understanding of your word and how it applies to us today. And Lord, we join David in praying, create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're jumping in at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. If you have your own scriptures, it's on the screen uh, as we read as well. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees 
and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed, in parentheses. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. We'll stop there. So these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they've come all the way from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and they've come for one purpose. They've come to vet Jesus. They've heard all about him. They've heard about his ministry. They've heard about how he seems to color outside of the lines of their tradition. They've heard of his, his penchant for kind of defying the, the protocols and, and the traditions of the day. And so they've come to, to see for themselves. Because there were things that were supposed to be done in a certain way. There was a, a hierarchy of authority. And they were at the, the top of that, that ladder, the top of that hierarchy. And, and not only was Jesus defying traditions, but he, he wasn't coming to them and asking for permission. He was just acting on his own initiative. And so they kind of showed up today as the religious police, there to investigate all of the things that they have heard. And no sooner do they arrive in Galilee and they find Jesus than immediately they witness the problem firsthand. They notice that the disciples are eating and they've noticed that before they began to eat, they didn't participate in the ceremonial washing of hands. Now, this is not just a, a case of bad hygiene by the, the disciples. We're not talking about you know, washing your hands, soap and water. This is a, a tradition. This is a, a ceremonial washing, Mark writes. In fact, you'll notice he puts in parentheses, and what he's doing there is he's writing a note to all his non-Jewish readers. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is primarily written to Rome, and there's a lot of people there who didn't grow up in Judaism, so they're unfamiliar with these traditions and customs. And so he's explaining to them what some of these customs are, the, the washing of hands and the washing of pots and kettles and, and cups. To violate this tradition in the eyes of the Pharisees was on par with breaking God's commandment. No different than violating one of the, the commands written in Scripture. And so one of those traditions was this, this ceremonial washing. Now, it wasn't a real washing. You'd ask, what, what was the purpose of this, this washing of hands and pots and kettles and, and cups? Well, the purpose was to identify the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, as a people that were consecrated that were set apart unto the Lord to differentiate them from all of the people in the surrounding cultures. This was one of the things they did that, that set them apart. Now, you and I haven't grown up in that tradition, and so it's really easy for us to say it's kind of a silly tradition, right? It's really kind of unnecessary. Does it matter if you participate in a, a symbolic 
washing of your hands before you eat, as long as you really have, you know, washed your hands with soap and water. It was one of the conversations we used to have with our, our kids. Did you wash your hands? Yes. With soap? Uh. <laughs> Does it matter if you do this ceremonial washing? No, we know that, that that doesn't matter. We know that there's nothing in the, the scripture that says you need to participate in this, this ceremonial washing. But before we do this, before we pass judgment on this tradition that doesn't make sense to us, this tradition that seems a little bit silly, I think we need to, to pause and recognize it is really easy to poke at someone else's tradition a tradition that you don't share, while at the same time insisting that your tradition is uber important. Like your tradition is sacred, it is sacrosanct, but somebody else's tradition that you don't, uh, that hasn't been part of your, your background and your heritage, well, that maybe is not so important. So I've thought about a few traditions. First, one that I did not grow up in. In the Catholic tradition, before they pray, I've noticed they make the sign of the cross. And I, and I believe it's the name of the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. And, and then they pray. And I've prayed in, in settings with other Catholic people, and, and I feel a little bad that I, I don't do that, and they all do it. Now, for someone who didn't grow up in the Catholic tradition, we might think, why? Why do you, you do that? But I know some of you did grow up in the Catholic tradition, and you would probably have the opposite experience, where if you were in the company and someone didn't do it, or if you didn't do it, immediately it'd be like, I did something wrong. Like, it, we just grew up that this was something we did, and it was important, and we saw value in it, and, and I didn't do it, and it's something wrong. But like I said, it's a lot easier to poke at someone else's tradition. So I was trying to think, what, what are some of our traditions? When I first came to Second Reformed Church, uh, one of the very first conflicts that we had here was that one of the deacons showed up uh, wearing shorts one morning. And uh, back then, this was, I mean, we, the deacons would go down the aisle and they would collect the offering. And several people after church just commented to me, you know, it just was, seemed a little bit irreverent and disrespectful. And then I got the, the anonymous note uh, later that week about how disrespectful that was and how our deacons need to be instructed that, you know, that they ought to dress just a little more, you know, a little more formally. I thought we might have to have a congregational meeting to, to settle this. So on the surf surface of it, you might say, oh, those people are just being curmudgeon -y. just being old curmudgeons. But really, that's not at all what was going on. What was going on is how people react when a treasured tradition is violated. We had a, an unspoken tradition for, for many years here at, at, at church that if you were a deacon, if you were an elder, you know, if the elders were serving communion, they'd be a little more dressed up on that day, and the, the deacons would, would you know, pay attention to their, their attire. That was one of the traditions. And then when that tradition was, quote, violated, it felt like something was wrong, like, like something needed to be fixed. Our traditions are powerful. Our traditions are so powerful. 
and there's value in traditions. They can be useful. One of the things our, our traditions do is they hand down the faith to ensuing generations. It's one of the way we do. We form traditions, and, and this is how we pass down the faith to, to the next generation. Here's two more traditions that maybe you haven't thought of as traditions. The celebration of Christmas. That's a tradition. If you look in your scriptures, I don't think there's anywhere in there that tells us to have four weeks of Advent and then a, a Christmas Eve service on December 24th that should be candlelight and that should end with the song Silent Night. But if we don't do that, it feels like there, there's something that we've missed, like we have done something wrong. Or how about Easter? Last Sunday was awesome. It was so good to be together and, and to worship Christ and celebrate the resurrection and have a, a full sanctuary. But if you look in Scripture, there's nothing that says set aside one, one Sunday a year and, and celebrate 40 days of Lent and have a Monday Thursday service, and maybe a Good Friday service, and then this Sunday where we greet each other reflexively, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Those are traditions. And we do them because they have value. This is how we, we celebrate the, the faith. This is how, how we are shaped as disciples of Christ. It's how we pass on our faith to the next generation. So when we hear about the Pharisees looking at the disciples and saying, what is going on? Like you are eating without washing your hands. They are experiencing the same thing we would experience if we didn't celebrate Christmas Eve. Or, or if, you know, we didn't do a big Super Bowl of Sundays on Easter. It, it's just, it's horrifying to them. So the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? What kind of loosey-goosey operation are you running here? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Ouch. I think one of the things Jesus is subtly doing is making a distinction between tradition and what I would call traditionalism. Traditions are those things that we do that routinely shape us. They add value. They're aids to us in our discipleship and in our pursuit of Christ. They're not the main thing. They're meant to add value. And if they're not adding value, then we should be able to stop doing them. Traditionalism is when those things that were meant to serve become taskmasters. Traditionalism is when the tradition no longer exists to serve us, but we exist to serve the tradition. So let me give you an example of that. A number of years ago, we used to have a point during the worship service where we would stop and invite you to greet one another. Liturgically, that's called the passing of the peace. 
and historically it served a purpose. It wasn't just, hey, good to see you, how are you doing? No, there was a, a formulaic greeting, it was the Lord be with you. And the person would respond, and also with you. And we got to a point where we decided, you know what, this tradition is no longer serving us well. For a couple reasons. One, it's redundant. All of you sit in the same place basically every, every Sunday. And by the time church service has started, you have already greeted the people around you. Two, nobody was doing the Lord be with you and also with you. It was more like, hey, good to see you. Uh, and three, while our extroverts loved it, a lot of our introverts hated it. And so we decided, you know what? This tradition isn't serving us so well. We're going to stop doing it. Traditionalism would say, you can't stop. You can't stop doing that. If you stop doing that, you're actually doing something wrong. You're not doing church the, the right way if you don't do that. Tradition makes a great servant, but a terrible master. So the Pharisees had turned their traditions, and they had a lot of them, into masters. The traditions had turned toxic because they forgot that these were just traditions, and they elevated them to the status of law. To break a tradition, a teaching of man, felt like breaking a law of God. And so they would double down and they would scrub the outside of the, the cup until it sparkled, which maybe became a convenient way of ignoring the inside of the cup. You hypocrites, Jesus said. You honor me with your lips and mouth. You follow all of your traditions to the nth degree, but your heart is far from me. It turns out it's a lot easier to follow a tradition than it is to address what's going on in our hearts. Whatever tradition it is, it's a lot easier to wear formal attire. It's a lot easier to say the Lord's Prayer rotely at the end of the congregational prayer. It's a, a lot easier to raise your hands in worship it's much easier to do all of that. It's much easier to wash your hands, a pot or a kettle or a cup, to do anything that has to do with the external appearance of things than it is to deal with the matters of the heart. Now, please don't hear me saying that external things don't matter. Of course they matter. But we can get lost in the externals and ignore the heart. You Pharisees, Jesus said, you're majoring in the minors and you're minoring in the majors. You're hyper-vigilant about washing pots and kettles and cups and hands because you think that if you do that, you're clean. But you're not. You've let go of the commands of God and you're clinging to the traditions of men. It's at this point that, that Jesus ups the ante. It was one thing to challenge the traditions of the elders. Jesus is about to actually challenge some of the things that were actually written in the scriptures. He's about to institute a new teaching. 
Verse 14, we're skipping to verse 14. Jesus called the crowd to him. And he said, listen to me, everyone. Understand this. Nothing outside man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd, he entered the house. His disciples asked him about this parable. These disciples had been raised from the time of, of infancy, being taught that there were certain foods that were clean, and there were certain foods that were unclean. These were foods you stay away from. You do not eat them, or else you are defiled. And this wasn't just a tradition of man. This was in the scriptures. They had been taught to, 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 to keep kosher. And now Jesus seems to be challenging this idea. And so they asked him for an explanation. Listen to how Jesus answers. Are you so dull? Again, ouch. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out his body. See, the poop emoji was actually uh, appropriate today. I didn't think of that. Mark again adds in parentheses, so he's giving us a little parentheses, describing what this all means, interpreting it for us. He said, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, it's just the disciples and Jesus, but if the Pharisees were present and they heard Jesus say that, their heads would have started spinning right on top of their bodies. The food laws were some of their most sacred laws. It was what separated them from the Gentile people. It helped shape their identity as the, as the children of God, the, the people of God. And now Jesus is removing that distinction. Go ahead, have a pulled pork sandwich. You see, what they didn't recognize is that Jesus was about to blow the lid off of the Jewish-Gentile distinction. No longer would a child of God just be someone was, who was Jewish. A child of God would be someone who, who had Christ as their Savior. Someone who was a new creation. Someone who had a new heart. Which brings us full circle. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Our problem is not external. It's internal. Jesus went on to say, what comes out of a man, that's what makes him unclean. For from within, out of our own hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and that's what makes a man unclean. Any religious practice, good, bad, any religious practice, any attempt to clean the outside of the cup is going to prove insufficient to meet our greatest need. Our greatest need, like Jeremiah wrote long ago and Jesus echoed, is that our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We don't just need to clean up our act. We need a new act. 
We need a new heart. And that's something that only God can do. It's beyond cure. That means we can't fix it. I will give you a new heart, God says through the prophet Ezekiel. I'm going to be the God who gives you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so as I see it, everyone here today has two options. Option number one, commit to a never-ending pursuit of cleaning the outside of the cup. Make it shine, make it sparkle. But at the end of the day, you've done nothing to address the real problem. Option number two, give the cup to Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. Pray what David prayed. Create in me, Lord, a clean heart. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever new. Renew in me a right spirit, because that I can't do. Be born again. I commend to you option number two. Join me as we pray. Father God, uh, it is so easy for us to be lured into becoming obsessed with the, the appearance of things and neglecting the heart. And uh, Lord, you know the fix that we're in. You know that our, our hearts are deceitful beyond cure. Lord, we need a Savior. And we praise you that you are that Savior. You are the God who gives us a new heart, who renews in us a right spirit. So Lord, help us call out to you, cry out to you. We thank you for being that faithful God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.